Welcome to the Former Review. Today, we'll be talking about three different movies. Now sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's talk about these movies. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Former Review. This is Season 3, Episode 54, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. Welcome to the sixth episode in the awards season series. So if this is your first time tuning in, as we are now in awards season, there are a lot of movies to be seen. So every year, I watch all the films that have been nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and then all the acting categories. I sometimes as well watch the screenplay movies if I have time or if there's one or two that I haven't seen. Now these films haven't been nominated yet, but there is a good indication of which films are most likely going to be nominated for these awards. So when these movies are released, I only have about a month to put out all my thoughts of these movies. Now, because the list is so big, I had to increase the amount of films that I cover in each episode to three. So I've already covered Mank, One Night Miami, Promising Young Woman, Trial of Chicago 7, Ammonite, Pieces of a Woman, Sound of Metal, News of the World, Nomadland, Malcolm and Marie, Min Ali, Judas and the Black Messiah, The Little Things on the Rocks, and the United States versus Billy Holiday. And you can go back and look at those episodes to figure out which one it is. Now, in this episode, I will be covering Emma, Calm with Horses, and Mauritanian. So stay tuned. Now, before I get into any of these movies, I do want to preface this episode with a slight spoiler warning. As with all of these episodes, I do my best not to ruin the movie for you, but I do suggest that you go watch the movie first before you hear what I have to say about it. Also, I know I say this at the end, but the data shows that really no one listens to that part. So I want to reiterate it here at the front. And I want to instill the importance of writing reviews of what y'all think of the podcast. As I continue on, I always look for feedback from my listeners and frankly it's because I really do this for you all and I want this to be entertaining so you can always go on to your favorite podcast subscription and write a review because I do check these out and I do want to know how you think I can improve do you want to hear more guests what do you want to hear definitely let me know because I want to grow and I want to get better it's always about improving so let me know and you can hit me up on social media for that anyway now if you don't want to hear all of the analysis of each movie you can skip ahead to each one for emma skip ahead to about the four minute mark and then for calm with horses you can go to about the nine minute mark and for the mauritanian you can go to about the 13 and a half minute mark or if you want to hear all of it just keep listening so sit back relax grab your drinks now let's talk about these movies Emma is a period comedy drama film directed by Autumn DeWilde from a screenplay by Eleanor Catton and is based on the Jane Austen novel of the same name published in 1815. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy as the titular character who is a young woman who interferes with the love lives of her friends. It also stars Johnny Flynn, Josh O'Connor, Callum Turner, Mia Goth, Miranda Hart, and Bill Nye. So the original novel explores many different concerns and difficulties of a woman living 
living in the Gregorian Regency England. And it's a comedy of manners and depicts the issues of marriage, sex, age, and social status back then. And one of the ways that Austin did this was basically reversing the genders of Pride and Prejudice, which gave her the ability to examine different expectations that society had of men and women, and essentially ends up being a commentary on the status of women, especially in this time. This novel has been adapted many times on television and also a long list of plays and also several films. In the film medium, it was adapted in 1995's Clueless, starring Alicia Silverstone, 1996 Emma, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, and then in 2010, Aisha, starring Saddam Kapoor. However, this is the first British-made version of the story. And for this rendition, novelist Catton takes the 1815 story and updates it very cleverly for the modern world and also in a progressive way. The original novel is known for wit and irony and obviously the social satire, but this film also adds in jabs and some slapstick humor into the story, though it's definitely more of the dry British humor. The biggest change though is with its ending, and this is a slight spoiler, but if you've read the novel, you kind of already know what it happens. Knightley does confess his love to Emma, but in this movie, she gets a nosebleed and was a very welcome change as it in a way humanizes Emma as it shows the imperfect and most often messy nature of love. And personally, even my proposal to my fiance wasn't perfect as up to an hour before I did, she had sunscreen in her eyes that only abated slightly a few minutes before I actually proposed and it really, really wasn't as perfect as I wanted it to be. And that's what this nobleed represents. It humanizing of Emma takes away from the sentimentality that normally comes in the typical romantic comedy movie. Before she wrote this novel, Austin said that she wanted to make a heroine whom no one but her liked. Luckily, Joy as Emma has exactly that, but also has some charm to her. Emma honestly is a brat and Joy doesn't try to make the audience like her in any way, but her performance keeps your eye on the screen the entire time. Though the biggest highlight of this movie is its production and direction. DeWild primarily was a photographer and she's directed music videos and this is her first film feature. Now, most directors who come out with their first film sometimes will struggle, but DeWild here brings a confidence to this movie and has a really, really awesome style thanks to her and cinematographer Christopher Bavelt and costume designer Alexandra Byrne and production designer Cave Quinn. And Bringing these four people together really gives a wonderful film to look at. So this film really succeeds with its direction, its details, its ending, its message, and really its acting. The only real flaw is that if one is not really a fan of this kind of period films, you're not going to like this one. Additionally, if somebody wanted a 100% true adaptation of Austin's Emma, this isn't it. But then again, was that the point of the movie? No, not really, especially when DeWild never really read the original novel prior to making this movie, and most of it was based on her viewing of the movie Clueless rather than Austin's prose. Even so, though, Emma is able to update the story for Maudie and audiences while also keeping true to Austin's commentary on gender norms and society of Regency England, and it provides a more modern feminist perspective that gives its characters a more evolved view on equality 
quality when it comes to relationships. At the end of the movie, it's not just simply about Emma finding a romantic partner. It's about finding somebody who's equal to her and views her in the same way that she views him. And so this movie really does have a nice ending. And frankly, I would really like to rewatch this movie at the same time that I would want to rewatch Pride and Prejudice or any of those other British romantic movies that are based on this style. So in that nature, it is a really good movie. And I mean, if you really like that elegant type of movie, riding around in horse-drawn carriages, this is the movie for you. Now, speaking of horses, let's move on to the next one. Calm with Horses, or The Shadow of Violence, as it was titled when it was released in the US, is a crime drama film directed by Nick Rowland in his future debut and written by Joseph Murtaugh. The film stars Cosmo Jarvis, Barry Keoghan, Niamh Algar, Ned Dentry, Kildin Moroni, and David Wilmot. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing any of those names. It was adapted from the short story of the same name from the collection Young Skins by Colin Barrett. So the film follows this ex-boxer Douglas or Arm, played by Jarvis, who works as this enforcer in a crime family in rural Ireland. One of the family members is Dimna, who is played by Keoghan, who basically keeps him in check and makes sure that he does every task, no matter how gruesome it is. So the first thing that this movie starts out with is Douglas must beat up this old man who has raped Dimna, his younger sister, and he beats him up in a very gruesome way that is pretty intense. Yet, the family is not satisfied. Meanwhile, also, Douglas's son, Jack, has autism and is helped by horse riding lessons. And Douglas's ex partner Ursula are planning to leave town to live closer to a school that can really help Jack effectively deal with his autism and eventually we see how this affects Douglas as a character and how he essentially is unable to control his rage and anxiety and Jarvis here is really really fantastic as a man of little words but a lot of emotion and honestly as a character he's simply just trying to find a way to do right by everyone around him and keeps pushing for this even though he's obviously being set up and betrayed by the people that he puts his trust in. Jarvis is absolutely fantastic here and really is comparable to Tom Hardy's breakout performance in Bronson. He really should be on everyone's radar as the next big actor. Yes, he is that good. Douglas has a very problematic temper that he is unable to control which pushes him away from his son and this also allows the crime family to manipulate him. While not definitely defined, it's fairly obvious that it's from the damage that he took when he was a boxer. He's not the easiest person to sympathize with, but there's still enough character to him that as the film plays out, viewers will still end up rooting for this guy. So Roland's film really blends the genre of crime thriller and family drama absolutely flawlessly. Piers McGrail, the cinematographer, captures both these landscapes and also claustrophobic interiors that really place the viewer into this world that really just demonstrates the world that Douglas is living in, both in his mind and 
physically. And this is supported by this electronic score composed by Benjamin John Power and really shows how this world that Douglas is living in has its rough edges, but also this somewhat soft perspective. And from each portion of the film, Roland is able to give the audience a view of what the central character's perspective on the world is. And it is extremely powerfully acted by everyone. The horse in this movie is predictably a representation of redemption and perhaps as well the ending of the film is slightly predictable. However, the message, the story, the film's attention to detail of integrating the score and the cinematography into the viewpoint of Douglas and the a talented and well-directed cash push really any of those concerns aside. Its short runtime at about an hour and 40 minutes gives a beautifully staged story that really shows the mental violence that's going on within Douglas's head, which is also worse than the violence that he's committing. Honestly, this film was an absolutely intense and gritty viewing experience that is worth every second and honestly is one of the best character films of 2020. Now, speaking of traumatic characters, let's go on to the next movie. Mauritanian is a legal drama film directed by Kevin McDonald from a screenplay written by M.B. Travin, Rory Haynes, and Zorab Nashvrani. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. The film is based on the 2015 memoir Guantanamo Diary by Hamadou Oud Salahi, which is a true story of Salahi's experience being held for 14 years without charge in the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. It stars Jodie Foster, Tahar Rahim, Jalene Woodley, and Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, so prior to Rahim, and Foster being nominated for Golden Globes for this movie, I had never heard of it. I am a big fan of Jodie Foster, so I was instantly interested in this movie, and also it was said to have really good acting in it, so I was very, very intrigued. And she ended up winning Best Supporting Woman Actress at the Golden Globes, so prior to watching this, I was even more excited. <laughs> and looking into the source material more, I became even more intrigued. So Guantanamo Diary is a best-selling memoir released in 2015, which was written by Salahi, while he was imprisoned in 2005 under the authority of the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, which was enacted on September 18th, 2001. The reason for his detainment? Because the US government said he was part of the Al-Qaeda at the time of his arrest in November 2001. The reason for this is because of his story. So let's go back a little bit to December of 1990. So he traveled from his home in Germany to Afghanistan to, quote, support the Mujahideen, who were attempting to talk the communist government at the time, and the U.S. supported this coup. And in fact, interestingly, the plot of Rambo 3 actually paints the people that Salahi was working for as the good guys. So he went back to Germany after training with Al-Qaeda and then returned to Afghanistan for two months in 1992. While there, he did train in Al-Qaeda. However, after the two months, he left Afghanistan for a second time, and he, at that point, severed all ties with Al-Qaeda. Unfortunately, that wasn't enough 
enough for the U.S. government. Later in his life, he ended up moving to Montreal in Canada, and he was suspected there of being involved with the attempted LAX bombing and was investigated by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Due to the scrutiny, he then returned to live in Mauritania and was cleared of all involvement. After 9-11, the U.S. then again became interested in him, and he turned himself into authorities for questioning and then was detained for seven days and questioned by the Mauritanian officers and by the FBI. He was then transported to a Jordanian prison where he was held for eight months and there he was tortured by the Jordanians and then was flown to Afghanistan. After again being held there for two weeks, he was then transferred to Guantanamo Bay detention camp in Cuba on August 4, 2002. And here he was objected to sleep deprivation, isolation, temperature extremes, beatings, and sexual humiliation. And in one documented incident, he was actually blindfolded and taken out to sea in a boat for a mock execution. Then, in 2010, Judge James Robertson ordered that he be released on March 22nd, and then the Department of Justice appealed that decision, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the ruling and reprimanded that the case to the District Court on November 5th, 2010 for further factual findings, but the District Court never held a second hearing. Then, on July 14, 2016, he was approved by a review board for the release from detention. He was then freed three months later on October 17, 2016 and returned to Mauritania. During this 14-year period, he wrote this memoir and his editor put the story together based on the manuscript that he and his lawyers brought to the editor. And each page of this had to be submitted for military censors and this was published while he was still in prison. And since he was released, Salahi has said that he forgives everyone who has wronged him during his detention. Then, on January 29th of this year in 2021, he and six other individuals published an open letter in the New York Review of Books to newly inaugurated President Biden, appealing to him to close the detention camp. And this letter is a bit long, so I'm not going to read everything, but I want to read some of the most important parts. The letter said, and I quote, First, we welcome your presidential orders to reverse many unjust and problematic decisions made by your predecessor. We appreciate your repeal of the, quote, Muslim ban, which now allowed nationals from the Muslim-majority countries previously targeted into the United States. Despite this, there is another flawed and unjust process that has continued through the five U.S. presidential administrations spanning two decades, Guantanamo Bay Prison. It was built to house an exclusively Muslim male population. Many of us were abducted from our homes, in front of our families, and sold for bounties to the U.S. by nations that cared little for the rule of law. We were rendered to countries where we were physically and psychologically tortured, in addition to suffering racial and religious discrimination in United States custody. President Bush opened it. President Obama promised to close it, but failed to do so. President Trump promised to keep it open. It it is now your turn to shape your legacy with regards to Guantanamo. During your inauguration, you said, quote, every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war, end quote. We agree. We believe you can close Guantanamo before its looming 20th anniversary, end quote to their letter. 
Now let's go back a little bit in regard to the movie to June of 2015 when producers bought the rights to this movie from the memoirs and then in 2016 Benedict Cumberbatch joined as a producer and then they started filming in December of 2019. So one thing that definitely came out of this movie is the opposite of Islamophobia and director Kevin McDonald shows that Salahi is a person who was unnecessarily tortured and is not a stereotype of a Middle Eastern terrorist. He's a person or a character that is engaging because of his belief that the truth will come out. He trusts Allah and the system. He will eventually be released and return to his family so much so that he's willing to go through the torture of the United States. And while this film obviously is showing the feelings of the filmmakers toward his case, it doesn't really take a political side because it's showing how both Republican and Democratic administrations allowed this kind of treatment to happen and kept him in a prison for 14 years. And it's absolutely wild that he was only released about five years ago. And this film really does give a sobering effect of what people will do because of their fear and especially their fear of another person's religion. And Islamophobia is defined as an exaggerated fear, hatred, hostility toward Islam and Muslims that is perpetuated by negative stereotypes resulting in bias, discrimination, and the marginalization and exclusion of Muslims from social, political, and civic life. Now, research has shown that the U.S. has identified more than 160 Muslim American terrorist suspects and perpetrators in the decades since 9-11. Now, this is a very small amount in comparison to the violence that happens in the United States every year outside of the religion. Yet, somehow, it is believed by some that Muslim-related terrorism is a lot more prevalent than it really is. And this may be due to how the media shows terrorist attacks. When you hear the word terrorist, what do you picture? Chances are it's not a white person. And there's not really one definition of terrorism, but the U.S. Patriot Act defines terrorism as a violent action that is intended to intimidate or coerce a civil population or influence the government. That is basically to say that anyone who really wants to do a extremely violent action trying to intimidate or influence somebody's view is terrorism. It's not really defined by a religion. So then why is it that a lot of people think that a terrorist equals Muslim? Why why is it that white Christian extremists who commit terrorist acts are not deemed as terrorists? For example, if you look at the Quebec City mosque shooting on January 29, 2017, a Christian man was responsible for that, yet he wasn't charged or sentenced under the terrorist provision of the criminal code, or he was even described as a terrorist by terrorism experts. And this is not the only case of this, as there's been many times where white Christians have attacked women health clinics, police officers, Jewish communities community centers, and Sikh temples, all due to ideology. Yet, these are not acknowledged as terrorist attacks. So, unless you're an old school racist, most likely anyone listening to this knows that it's wrong to judge people because of their ethnicity or religion. Yet, a lot of people do this nonetheless. Now, there's a difference between racism and prejudice, but I'm not going to go into that here. The reason why I bring that up is that there have been countless amounts of studies that have shown that when an a performance or behavior are evaluated, it is very different depending on the ethnicity of the person. However, that doesn't mean that this happened intentionally. Rather, it 
it becomes almost a result of our unconscious minds. As humans, we put in place these kind of shortcuts in our head that help us process all the amount of information. The internet has a lot of information and we have to put it in our head and try to remember it. And these shortcuts can be accurate some of the time, but also they can lead to errors as a lot of shortcuts do. For example, we have essentially called our dog a cat because of her behavior. She sleeps all day and doesn't really interact with other dogs or humans for that matter. Though there are times where somehow she gets energy and does quote normal dog things and we know she's obviously a dog but we're basically calling her a cat based on her behavior. She's obviously not a cat and though the majority of the time we are right, there are some times that obviously we aren't right here and 100% reliance on the shortcuts means we're going to make these predictable mistakes where in the situations where she's acting exactly how a normal dog would. And the same really goes for how some people may categorize people in their head by their ethnicity or religion. And this becomes basically this unconscious bias. Now, where does this come from really? So when specifically looking at religion, research has shown that Muslim-related terrorist attacks received about 450% more media coverage. And when looking at Muslims, generally speaking, 75% of the time, it's going to be about a terrorist attack. Now, research has also shown that over 900 Hollywood films have Arab or Muslim men represented as terrorists or other villains. And this is why when people hear the word terrorist, it becomes unconsciously associated with Muslims and Islam. And furthermore, once these stereotypes are in place, confirmation bias starts to set in, which is when we as humans start to notice and process and remember information in a way that confirms these beliefs. So even after committing really bad acts of violence, the media and also a lot of people out there see white Christians depicted as human beings and not just terrorist others. And they show pictures of their childhood, their graduation photos, and not mugshots. And time and time again, attention is more pushed toward the mental health of these extremists. While with Muslims, the assumption is that they have done it because of their religion. And then the attacks of these white Christian extremists are looked off as one-offs and are not subject to searches or mistreatment because of what they look like or what they wear. If this was true for white Christians, and we would hear a lot more about searches happening at airports. And to demonstrate what I mean, let me tell you a story. So back in college, I was part of an Islamic culture club. And like any college group, we have t-shirts. Now these t-shirts have the name of the club written on the front of them in English, but the font looks very similar to Arabic. So normally when you're traveling internationally and you go through customs, you're asking maybe five things like, where are you going? Why are you here? Etc. And then you're on your way. Very simple and smooth. When I was wearing that shirt while traveling internationally, I got questioned a lot more. I got asked, what are your names, your parents? Why are they here? Where are they staying? How much money do you have on you? How much money do they have on them? And many more questions that made me stand there for about 20 to 25 minutes or maybe even more. Now, I'm not Muslim and nor do I look like what people would stereotype as Muslim. Yet, for some reason, I was questioned more and held up more at customs when I was wearing this shirt versus when I wasn't. Now, these may have been isolated incidences, but then when you add in the times that many other 
other actual Muslims claim that they have had similar experiences, it's really hard to not see the connection. And there's a lot of misunderstanding of Islam as a religion and that it actually is very similar to Christian and also Jewish beliefs. But I'm not going to go into that here. The point here is that Salahi was unreasonably treated because of his religion. And the story that this film shows is a demonstration of that. Even so, he remains confident in the U.S. system and that his lawyer, Nancy Hollander, who is played wonderfully by Foster. Now, Foster has had a pretty amazing career, but in more recent years, she somewhat stepped away from Hollywood. Luckily, she came back for this one and honestly is a treasure to see on screen. And really, any Foster fan will love her here. And this is, interestingly, her first real-life person character. Now, Hollander goes up against Cumberbatch's by-the-book prosecutor, whose thick southern accent may be a little jarring, though that's potentially the only bad part of his performance. And also, Woodley does a good job as Hollander's assistant lawyer, Terry Duncan. Though, the real star here is Rahim As-Salahi and he balances the complex mind of the man while also not falling into that stereotypical role that Muslims have and also not just a stereotypical victim of an unjust crime against him and his ability comes through by being able to portray a man that deserves every audience's members empathy. The film's ending is the only problematic issue of this movie as it may feel anticlimactic and honestly fairly abrupt and this this may be due to the fact that the memoir that this film is based on ends prior to his release. The film does show this through a typical biopic fashion with words and images, but it's not really part of the movie's story. And this also may be due to the director wanting to humble the audience with the recent part of this movie and the tragedy of it instead of giving a conclusive conclusion to the story. And this would make sense as the story is essentially still going as the prison is still technically open. However, the lack of a decision of this reason for the ending can leave some wanting more, but there isn't much more to give and it ends up just being kind of unfulfilling. Overall though, the film does succeed with its acting, its details, its story, and its message even if it isn't able to 100% stick the landing. Both Tamir and Foster really deserve any nominations, if not awards coming their way, and it's worth watching for them and really the true tragedy alone. Now, what did you think of the movies? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. The former review is on Facebook, Twitter, the Gram, and now YouTube, where I will be posting many things, including trailer reaction. Handle is all the same. It's at the former review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to the former review. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're now on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. Honestly, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, we have our content there. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so please leave a review and what you want to hear because I really do this for you all. I see the numbers and I really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly, that's what it's all about. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, thank you again. And if you want to help support on a financial basis, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast and honestly any donation is appreciated thank you all again for tuning in and until next time wear your mask wash your hands stay safe and take care everyone thanks for tuning in to another episode of the formal review cheers and we'll see you next time